Welcome back to Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed. I'm one of your hosts, Renee Riefel. And I'm your other host, Kisa Holke. We are excited today because we have a mutual friend on the podcast uh, as we continue our Listen To series. That's right. We're continuing to talk to people of color about areas of disparity in America. Today, we're talking to our friend, Timelyn Bowens, as we focus on the area of personal finance. Timelyn S. Bowens, owner of Bowens Tax and Bookkeeping Solutions, is an enrolled agent licensed through the Internal Revenue Service that works with clients and companies to increase profitability through strategic tax planning and the implementation of tax strategies through their budget. Timelyn began her career in 2011 with one of the top 10 accounting firms in the world, Pro Horwath, where she did three busy seasons in the tax department. And this next part, Timelyn, of your bio amazes me. <laughs> and it just goes to show me that God gives us all different gifts. Timelyn fell in love with taxes <laughs> and tax strategy at Pro Horwath. I just hats off to you because that's incredible. Five years after stepping foot through the door at Crow, Timelin began her own tax and accounting firm, Bowen's Tax and Bookkeeping Solutions that we mentioned earlier, which is a virtual firm based out of Louisville, Kentucky. Timelin is also a wife, a mother, and a racial reconciler. She has been praised for her ability to teach as she works by her clients and for being knowledgeable, patient, and ready to provide assistance by her peers and mentees all the while inspiring change and educating in an engaging way while providing her audience with actionable takeaways they can immediately start implementing in their lives and business. Welcome to Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed, Timelin. We are very excited to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you ladies today. Uh, We're going to start by talking about the racial wealth gap. So for those uh, who have heard this term before but are unsure of the meaning, The racial wealth gap is the disparity in median wealth between the different races. Why are we still talking about this in 2021? How much time do we actually have on the podcast? (laughs) Because this one, there's so much to unpack there. But one of the things that I have noticed in my, of course, limited amount of time here on earth is we have a very clear lack of access for people of color, and then also a lack of education. When I say lack of education, please don't mistake me to be talking about formal education like college or anything like that. For different um, races, what you see is we don't have that rich uncle Mm. to be like, okay, I struggled through, I made it, this is how you do Mentorship in business is not always readily available because hands-on and that mentorship is a huge education component that is missing. So we see black and brown people making more money, but the other part of that is knowing how to keep that money. You will notice a theme throughout this episode. One of the biggest indicators of financial success for Black Americans is, were they educated about personal finance by their family? Did they have a mentor? The return on investment of informal education in the area of Black wealth is immeasurable. We'll keep going with that because it's important that we understand that uh, the realities of this gap. A recent CNBC story reported on how that wealth gap is only getting worse between white and Black Americans. The story says this, 
According to a recent study by McKinsey and Company, Black Americans can expect to earn up to $1 million less than white Americans over their lifetime. The median white family had more than 10 times the wealth of the median Black family in 2016, according to the Federal Reserve's most recent survey of consumer finance. White families had the highest level of median wealth at $171,000, while Black families' median wealth was $17,600, and Latino families were 20,700. The story talked about the lack of personal finance uh, education and especially minority communities being the key factor here. What are your thoughts on that? No matter how many times I read or hear that, it still has the same shock factor. It goes back though to what I said initially with that lack of education and mentorship. So. If we look at the time, and speaking specifically about Black people um, in America, at a time where ownership wasn't always available. So here in Louisville, um, if you're not familiar, your listeners aren't familiar with redlining and how Black and Brown people had to stay within certain communities, well, if you have money and you can't purchase houses, land, one of the ways that people showed that they had money was by putting it on display. So with clothes, cars, and not to be accounting nerd, <laughs> tax nerd here, those things depreciate. They're not of value in five years. A car depreciates as soon as you take it off the lot. When we look at things like that with people having money but not being able to put it into something that is going to appreciate and have value. One, we don't have anything to pass down. Then we don't have anybody who can teach you how to invest into anything because they didn't have the opportunity to do that themselves. Part of what I wanted to do in going to business for myself was, again, formal education was great, but the hands-on experience and seeing tax plans and seeing different ways that people could invest their money in ways to make it work for them is I was like, I have to be able to step out on my own to help bridge that gap. Because there are so many things that I take for granted that I know from the experiences that I had that other people just don't know. And we see it even with entertainers today. The first thing they do when they get that big contract, mm -hmm. they go buy things that we can all see. They don't go invest it so that can grow and they have that wealth to pass down to the next generation. That's a, re that's a really good point. That last piece you said there, I think that happens across all races. There's mm. something flashy about it. And I can, I can prove to you that I'm keeping up with the Joneses by having the best car that's on the lot right now. Or, and then I made it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It, it is interesting to me. And then as a white person to sit back and think about the difference. And I grew up in poverty. I, it's just interesting to me because as a white family, though, probably in the 80s, my parents had different opportunities than the black family living in poverty, you know, across the county line. So are you beginning to see how all of these areas of disparity are linked together? Timelin talks about home ownership and redlining contributing to the racial wealth gap. Earlier this season, we talked to Chris Lacey, and we learned about the disparities in home ownership between Black families and white families. Seattle-based real estate brokerage Redfin just released a study this month. The study found that redlined homes across the country 
suffer a far higher risk of flooding today. Here in Louisville, a city prone to regular flooding, we know it can be difficult and often costly to sell a home prone to flooding. Imagine how that shapes the generational wealth. A Bloomberg article about the Redfin study says this, across 38 major U.S. metros, more than $107 billion worth of homes at high risk for flooding were located in historically redlined and yellow-lined neighborhoods. That's 25% more than the value of homes at high flood risk located in parts of the city deemed desirable. That is, white neighborhoods. The 2018 report by the Economic Policy Institute says that white workers are paid more on average than Black and Latinx workers at almost every education level. So, Timelin, how, how do minorities even catch up? In 2021, how do they catch up with this being the case? Can they catch up? Yes, they can, um, but it's not going to be an overnight process. It's definitely going to be something that is going to take time. Two ways that they can catch up is one, building their own. If you have your own business, you provide jobs within that structure, you can pay people the way that you feel they should be paid, which on the flip side is what's happening, right? Because we have these workers that aren't being paid the same as their white counterparts because someone has seen fit that they don't, either they don't deserve it or their qualifications, whatever the case is. But again, by building your own, you need some type of mentorship, somebody that can like show you the ranks. And with that being said, building your own isn't going to be easy because these corporations that people are leaving because they're not getting paid enough, how many years have they been in business? So living in a microwave society where people are like, oh yeah, I'm going to go start my own business. So I can get paid what I want. They're not thinking through how much time that's going to actually take. You know, racial relations, it's debatable, are better than they were in the 60s. So we have a group of people who think, okay, if I'm able to get into this office door, that's good enough. And they don't realize without proper mentorship, you can negotiate your salary. It doesn't have to be an argument. It doesn't have to be seen as disrespect. That's a part of working in the corporate world is salary negotiation, which when I talk to my black and brown counterparts, that's not even something that like occurs to them. It's not one of those you go in and this is what they offer. Because if we think about it realistically, if you want to think in terms of a business owner, you're not going to go offer this person the most right off the bat. But like if you've been there and you've proven yourself, not saying that a corporation is going to always agree with you or give you exactly what you want, but you can go in there and negotiate that. That also will help to close that gap faster. Yeah. Question. I, the, you were talking about how a lot of times black and brown people just don't know to go in and negotiate. Now, is that because of what you said before? Is that the education piece? Is that the mentorship piece? Or is it a combination of with maybe confidence and lack of self-worth? I've, I've wondered that because in my own personal life, in this white skin, I have in my early years in my career, I wouldn't do that either. I don't know if it's a female thing. I don't know. It, sometimes it was lack of confidence. So I'm curious, is it more than just education? Um, I, 
in my opinion, my humble opinion, I think it is more than just the education. I was blessed that as I was going through corporate ranks, I actually had male mentors and looking at different studies, even um, as I was getting ready to graduate, white men are more likely to negotiate their salary than people of color in general. (laughs) But women and not people of color, but men of color are the last people that will go in and negotiate. Because it's almost like I mentioned earlier, like I got hired, I'm asking too much if I question what I'm actually worth in this work environment. And yeah, early on, I I would have never. <laughs> Timeline talked about salary negotiation here. This piece is interesting to us. After talking about white men being more likely to negotiate their salary, we did some research. While this is true, there are some nuances. Harvard Law School published a piece on their blog in November 2020. In this piece, the writer references an experiment done by University of Virginia professor Morella Hernandez. She and her team assigned more than 200 adults of various races to role play. Some were playing a candidate for a job, some were playing hiring evaluators. They did 15-minute negotiation simulations over a job with a salary range of $82,000 to $90,000. Then the participants answered questions to assess their level of racial bias. The Harvard Log wrote this about the results. The study results showed that white and black candidates were equally likely to try to negotiate their salary. However, evaluators who scored high for racial bias believe that Black candidates had negotiated more often than white candidates. This false perception, likely based on the biased evaluator's expectation that Black candidates would and should settle for less, led them to penalize Black candidates for negotiating by granting fewer salary concessions. In fact, each time a Black candidate was perceived to have made an offer or counteroffer, participants high in racial bias gave them about $300 less in starting salary on average. By contrast, evaluators who scored low on racial bias had more accurate perceptions of candidates' negotiating frequency and granted more equitable salaries as a result. So the moral of the story is this. Something is happening that causes people of color to earn less across the country. And it is definitely a much bigger story that people of color simply choosing to not ask for more because that isn't necessarily the case. Whatever the reason, families of color struggle to catch up because of these disparities. All right, so Timlin, in 2016, the Institute for Policy Studies found that um, it will take 228 years for the average Black family to attain the same level of wealth as white families. And now we know that the homeownership gap is the worst it's been in 50 years. On student loans, more than 20% of Black borrowers default. We also read that the credit score gap is significant. That sounds like a lot of bad news for Black Americans. Is there any good news in your opinion? Do you have any encouragement for people of color? For me, what I would, because 228 years, that's one of those as well. Like, it doesn't matter how many times I read it. I could look at it every day. It still, like, hits me in the chest. What my advice for Black Americans would be, And pursuing things like home ownership, building their credit, um, building wealth is to not try to keep up with the Joneses. Because if you start out where you can, 
you can build from there. Your first home does not have to be a five bedroom, three and a half bath with a pool in the back. Mm. Because if we look at the amount that people are paying for rent, again, this is my opinion. I'm not saying I'm the know all be all, but to own a home that is nice in your name versus being in that apartment and putting money in somebody else's pockets, people don't realize the power of that. Then they have collateral to build on, to get something bigger if they want, to get something to pass down. But what I see um, with business owners, when I'm talking to people younger than me, just getting out of college, the first thing they want to do is go buy the big house or we have to go get this apartment where I'm paying $1,400 in rent. And I'm like, it's just you. And I know you got these student loans. Like that doesn't make sense. Until those student loans are paid off, your degree is not even really yours. Going and starting where you can, like I said, not trying to keep up with the Joneses, going based on your budget and what you can do would help people knock that out. Now, with the student loans, I'm going to talk about predatory lending. <laughs> that is, it's amazing to me. And I can't remember the percentage um, right now off the top of my head, but how student loans or like schools and the counselors and everything, how they go to communities with um, black and brown students who likely would not be able to go to school without any type of financial aid. The first thing they offer them is student loans versus scholarship, which you're being set up for failure. Um I remember when I went to college, I ended up choosing Bellarmine. So private school, Catholic in tradition. I I love my time there. It opened me up to a lot of opportunities. So I have no regrets with that. However, my grandparents were so excited for me. Not that my parents weren't, but um, my grandparents were excited. And I remember reading this letter to my papa and I was like, I got $17,000 a year and scholarships. And he was like, anything you need through school, like we'll help you with that. And I was like, Oh shoot, I need more money to pay tuition. And his jaw just like dropped. He's like, I thought you said you had 17,000 a year. It's like, Mm. yeah, tuition's like 30. And then I got to stay on campus as a freshman, like naming all these costs. And I think Mm. about that. I was blessed at the end of my time there I did have student loans, but I only had the equivalent of what it is to go there one year now. But I think about how many people were so dead set on going to a good school, mm-hmm. didn't have the scholarships I had, and took out all student loans. But especially within brown and black communities, just because of the way America was kind of is-ish, People my age don't want to be in service roles. And when I say that, so vocational jobs, because we feel like we have to keep up with the Joneses. Right. So what happens is I have to go to school. But what do you want to do when you get out? I don't know, but I have to go to school because that's the way. I had friends that didn't know what they wanted to do at school when they got out for like three years. So now they have all of these student loans no job in sight to pay these student loans, but because they've been programmed that school is the way to make it with no plan at all, they get stuck with student loans they can't pay. And then here we are widening the gap even more. 
And then it's like, even if you did get a job in your area of expertise, if you're getting paid $30,000 a year, but you have $160,000 in student loans, you're still going to have negative equity. Colleges love that, though. Shoot. Oh, they, yeah. They want us to come in there not knowing what we want to do. And Yeah. And I, and I want to ask, Timalyn, if you think, um, do you think we're being set up as people of color to be in debt? And I and I'll. I'll say this. I went away uh, to school to a small, 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 small black college uh, in Texas <laughs> briefly. And uh, within a month of being there, they had Discover Card come in to sign everyone up for credit cards. And my parents were like, no, absolutely not. Do not sign up. I don't know if they do that at all institutions or, you know, or all co- they do. OK, so I was just wondering if you felt like that was more directed toward people of color. I graduated college with about $10,000 in credit card debt because I was one of the idiots that, I mean, we're not idiots if you do, we're idiots if you do that. And because I was like, ooh, I can get this credit card now. Mommy and daddy don't need to approve of it. Right, And I can go to the mall and buy all the clothes that I've always wanted that I couldn't afford when I was a teenager. Yeah, they sat sat up at our student center and we were predominantly white school. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that it's not. Timeline can answer this question. I'm not saying that it's not targeting people of color more so than white people. I don't know that answer, but I do know they're targeting everyone and still are. My son, who's 17, just got a credit card offer. I don't know, Kisa, if I can answer that because Bellarmine is most definitely a PWI. (laughs) I think my freshman class, we joke about it, but it's true. When I went, we could all sit together and I say we. Every black student that came in my freshman class could sit at one table in Coster's, which was the eating facility. I do not remember them setting up shop on campus. However, I do remember when I turned 18, they were almost knocking the doors down. And I don't know what that was based on, if they had demographics from something else. I hear stories like yours all the time, Renee. But again, because I had parents who were educated on it grandparents who were educated on it. I was in almost the 800 credit score club before I graduated college because I knew how to use my credit card. I see low-income families always offer payday loans, the credit Mm. cards. So when you have somebody coming out of a low-income family, this they don't necessarily have to be brown or black, Becoming out of a low-income family, like you said, now you're like, oh, mom and dad don't have to approve of this, or now I'm finally getting to live a little bit. Because I saw people get credit card debt, and it's not because they were going to the mall and shopping. I had other brown and black classmates who literally were using it to live um, because they Uh didn't have the scholarships that cover room and board. So while it was nice that they were able to kind of be comfortable getting through college, there was nobody there to say, okay, maybe you could pick up a 10 hour a week job versus using Discover every week to pay for groceries. I know that was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> I don't no, know. It's good. It's it's good. That helps because if, if it's not a part of, you know, like a systemic thing, it's it's good to know because I was curious. I'm like, you know, after thinking about this episode and the last question, like why, um, why they would, would do that. It's starting kids out in debt or is it just people of color? So I think you, that was very helpful. Your answer is very helpful. 
I think it's equally disastrous, though, for people of color. Like, I, What I mean is that, okay, so they're offering these to all kids, regardless of race. I mean, they absolutely are, because they can get you. They can get you young mm. and get you look, hooked into these interest rates for years and years, right? But I think what's more complicated for people of color is what we're talking about, right, mm-hmm. guys? Like, we, people of color are starting the game of Monopoly later in the game. And so there's this generational wealth gap between white families and black families. And then you go to college as a black student and you're offered this credit card. Well, that just piles on top of the story. So I think it's important to point out that that's happening to kids because it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's, it's dangerous. Well, we talked about student loan debt and credit card debt affecting everyone. And that is very true. The deeper truth is that once again, this area is disproportionate. Here are a few stats from this past year that Business Insider published to help us all wrap our minds around the reality for black college students. 86% of black students borrow federal loans to attend four-year colleges compared to 59.9% of white students. An average black graduate has $7,400 more in student debt than his or her white peer. Black student loan borrowers default on their loans at five times the rate of white graduates. Graduates of historically black colleges and universities take on 32% more debt than their peers at other colleges. White borrowers pay down their education debt at a rate of 10% a year compared with 4% for black borrowers. And to wrap this up with a bow, we already know that black Americans earn less than white Americans, even college graduates. The system is definitely in need of repair. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Timelin Bowens. We're going to continue the conversation on personal finance next week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Envision Radio. So be sure to check that out. And don't turn us off quite yet. Our two-minute story is coming up, and you don't want to miss that. At the end of every episode of Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed, we tell a two-minute story about a Black hero. Today, we remember Annie Turnbow Malone. Annie became one of the first Black women to reach millionaire status by starting a successful hair care business. If it weren't for Annie, we may not know about Madam C.J. Walker. The Netflix series Self Made is about Walker and stars Octavia Spencer. Ironically enough, Annie is not nearly as well known as Madam C.J. Walker. Annie was born in Metropolis, Illinois in 1869. Her parents were former slaves. And as a child, Annie loved hair care and enjoyed experimenting with chemistry. She had to leave high school because of illness, but never lost her passion for chemistry. An aunt, with some experience, helped guide her as she learned to make different products, including her very first product, a liquid shampoo. Annie moved to St. Louis in 1902, home to the 1904 World's Fair. She grew her business significantly at that time, opening her own shop on Market Street in St. Louis. She also helped popularize cosmetology schools by starting Pearl College, teaching women about scalp health. She also made corporate responsibility cool before it was cool by giving much of her money away. Competition came, though, when one of Annie's former employees started selling similar products in Denver in 1905. That employee's name? Madam C.J. Walker. What's interesting is the label given to Madam C.J. Walker, the first Black female millionaire. That is simply not true. 
Not to diminish the accomplishments of Madam C.J. Walker, but Annie Malone was a millionaire before Walker. One of the reasons why historians believe Walker became more popular is because her life was far more eventful by any standard. She married at 14, became a mother shortly after that, was widowed by age 20, and died young at the age of 51. Annie Malone was well-educated, never widowed, didn't experience extreme poverty, and lived to the age of 90. But what's remarkable about Annie is her commitment to her work. She grew her business as a Black woman in the early 1900s in St. Louis and kept it afloat during the Great Depression. By the 1950s, 32 branches of her Pearl College were opened across America. John H. Whitfield, who wrote a book called A Friend to All Mankind, Mrs. Annie Turnbow Malone and Pearl College once said this about Annie. The story of Madam C.J. Walker was popularized justifiably from photographs demonstrating the growth of her wealth, albeit short-lived, in the appeal of her rags-to-riches experience. The story of Mrs. Annie Turnbow Malone exemplified a different focus, self-help and personal dignity. Annie Malone died in 1957 at the age of 90. Today, the Annie Malone Children and Family Service Center reaches St. Louis area youth and families. Every year, there's also an Annie Malone Parade in St. Louis. Uh, We hope you all will tune in again next week as we continue to be humble, be kind, be courageous, and be good listeners. Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed is written and produced by Kisa Holti and myself. Music is licensed through musicbed.com. Learn more about us, hear more episodes, and send us your questions and comments at two mamas and a mustard seed.com.